So, if you haven't been around, just to kind of catch you up to speed, the author of Hebrews for, for eight chapters now has gone to great lengths to show the glory of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a number of ways that he's done so just a moment ago. And now, here in chapter 9, he, he's not going to let off the gas pedal. He, he's going to come at the beauty and supremacy of Jesus Christ from yet another angle. He's going to explain both the layout of the Old Testament tabernacle. We're going to take a look at that with some really cool illustrations from what appear to be the 80s. I'll throw them up on the screen in just a moment. Uh, and, and we're going to take a look at the worship that took place within that very tabernacle. And then we're going to see how the author of Hebrews uh, is out to show us that both the tabernacle and the sacrifices that took place within that tabernacle were inadequate. They couldn't provide immediate and intimate access to God's presence, and they couldn't deal with the sinner's conscience, but only with external purification. And he's even going to argue that, that the tabernacle and the sacrificial system that you read about in the Old Testament were the Holy Spirit's way of preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. Preparing the world for Christmas, you might say. He continues the argument that he's been making for eight chapters now. If you pick up verse 1, it says this. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Going back to, to last week, God established a covenant with the Israelites in Moses' day, and that covenant involved certain practices of worship as well as a particular place of worship. And the author of Hebrews is going to unpack both of those things for us, the, the place of worship in verses 2 through 5 and the practice of worship in verses 6 through 10. And then he's going to do what he's been doing all along. He's going to show us that Jesus is better. That's his MO. That's what he does. Um, let's, let's first look at the description of the place of worship in verses 2 through 5. He says this, he says, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. The, the author of Hebrews, he, he knows a couple of things to be true. For one, a detailed explanation and description of the Old Testament tabernacle would require going back and exploring massive sections of the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Um, he doesn't have that kind of writing space. If he, if he attempted to do that, we'd be in this series for like the next five years. So um, I'm kind of glad that he did not go back and attempt to go into great detail in that sense. We don't have that kind of time this morning. We would be here for the next five years just, just trying to get after uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and everything that uh, we're told therein about the tabernacle. Th this is where uh, my hope of, of our study of the book of Hebrews as a church compels you to go back and spend some time in your Old Testament. That if you haven't done so uh, before, that, uh, that this book and our study of it would be a sort of crash course that would launch you into your own further study of the Old Testament. I think that would serve you well. The second thing, though, is, is this. The author of Hebrews doesn't have to spend much time in detailed discussion of the Old Testament tabernacle. His original audience was well acquainted with uh, Israel's original house of worship. However, my guess would be that most of us have not 
uh, done a deep, intricate study of the Old Testament tabernacle. Maybe you have, and if you have, that's really cool, and, and you'll see some things that you've seen before, and, and maybe those things will come to life again. Uh, but for most of us, we, we haven't taken uh, coursework on the Old Testament tabernacle. Uh, and therefore, it would probably serve us well to at least get into a few of the details so we can kind of see what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in showing the superiority and beauty of Jesus. And so here you go, sweet graphic straight from the ESV study Bible. Uh, if you need a study Bible, that's a great one because you get graphics like this inside of that study Bible. The, the tabernacle was, it was a portable temple that was always situated at the center of God's people as they journeyed through the desert on their way to the promised land. If you've been around for this series, you'll recall back in chapter 3, we talked about um, the Israelites and how they were freed from Egyptian enslavement and were brought into the wilderness on a journey toward Canaan, the land that God promised them. And so whenever the Israelites would set up camp in the wilderness, the, the 12 tribes of Israel would strategically surround the tabernacle so that it was the central focus. In, in approaching the tabernacle, and you can see this behind me, you would first encounter a surrounding wall of white linen, which created uh, an enclosed courtyard. That courtyard itself was about a quarter the size of a football field. And when you entered the courtyard, you would immediately find yourself in front of what was known as the altar of burnt offering. Unless you were a priest, that altar was as far as you could go. It was an altar that God's people would approach in offering sacrifices for sin. Just beyond that altar was what was known as the bronze basin. It was used by the priests for their ceremonial washings. Um, and if the priests failed to use it properly, according to Exodus chapter 30, they put their very own lives in jeopardy. Just beyond the basin, if we zoom in on another sweet graphic, uh, we'll see the tabernacle itself. It was a flat roof tent that was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. Probably very similar to the size of the space that, that we're in in many regards right now. Um, the covering of the tabernacle included a layer of, of woven tapestries of blue, purple, and scarlet, which communicated something of God's royalty. And laid over the, the layer of tapestries were layers of, of animal skins uh, alluding to the sacrificial system and what God was up to in redeeming his people, his plan. Um, if you were to enter the tabernacle, which you and I would never be allowed to do, by the way, you would find that the actual interior itself was divided into two rooms. We've, we've talked about this in this series before, but now he gets into more specific detail. The, the first room was known as the holy place, which the author of Hebrews describes in verse 2, it says, For a tent was prepared, in the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. The, the lampstand was a reminder of God's presence. And so the priests were responsible for changing the lamp oil so, uh, to make sure that the light always continued to burn as a reminder that God was with them. The bread was a reminder of God's blessing. And so the priests were responsible for making sure that fresh bread was always on the table. There were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel on that table. As you made your way past the lampstand and the bread of the presence, there was this massive curtain that separated the first room from the second room. And the author of Hebrews describes that second room in verses three through five, where he says, behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. 
And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So the second room is known as the most holy place or the holy of holies. Um, This was the place that God would descend to meet with his people in a glory cloud. And right up against that curtain was what was known as the golden altar of incense. The smoke from that altar would drift into the most holy place. And then there was the the Ark of the Covenant um, serving as a reminder of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Within the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, serving as a reminder of God's covenant with Israel and their responsibility to uphold their end of the covenant through obedience to the law. Aaron's staff served as a reminder of God's establishment of the priesthood, a mediatorial role between God and man. The golden urn holding the manna served as a reminder of God's provision and care. In other words... We're meant to see that every furnishing, even the tabernacle itself, which we don't even have time to get into this morning, was steeped in deep, deep, deep symbolism. Covering the ark was the mercy seat, or what was also known as the atonement cover that fit perfectly on top of the ark. And on top of the mercy seat, fashioned out of the same piece of gold that the mercy seat was fashioned out of, were two cherubim. They had wings outstretched over the mercy seat and faces that looked downward in reverent wonder. Practically every one of the furnishings within the tabernacle was made of gold, providing a visible display of God's infinite worth, his infinite value, his infinite majesty. That's the picture of the place of of worship for Old Testament Israel. On the one hand, it makes this makeshift auditorium look sad and pathetic, right? Even with the tree, we don't measure up to, to their house of worship. On the other hand, you begin to see the the concentric circles of approachability with respect to God. If you were not a priest, you you couldn't go past that altar in the courtyard itself, much less enter the actual tabernacle. And you had to be ceremonially clean to even enter into the outer court. You can just picture worshipers bringing their sacrifices to that courtyard one after another after another, never-ending sacrifices offered to God on behalf of sinners, constant bloodshed. And then there was the role of the priests themselves, which the author of Hebrews goes on to unpack in verses 6 through 7 as we move from the place of worship to the description of the practice of worship. It says this, verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of of the people. So, so the priests would perform their ritual duties uh, associated with the first room inside the tabernacle, the holy place that we talked about in verse 2. Again, they would change out the lamp oil in, in, in order to make sure that the lampstand continued to burn. They would make sure that fresh bread was always on the table of the presence. They would stoke the coals of the altar of incense to create a sweet smelling smoke that would fill the tabernacle. But, but they didn't dare go near the second room. The the most holy place. That room was reserved for the high priest alone. And and it wasn't like he could go in whenever he wanted to. He couldn't go in at will. He was allowed to enter that second more sacred room once a year. On the day of atonement, the high priest would go in and offer incense and sprinkle the blood of sacrificial animals, both for his own sins and the sins of the people, which would appease God's wrath. Listen to how Kent Hughes describes the preparation of the high priest for that day every year. He says this in his commentary. He says, seven days before the day of atonement, the priest left home and stayed day and night in the temple. 
During the week, he practiced what he would do on that great day so that he would make no mistake. He was especially cautious not to come close to anything that would make him ceremonially unclean. Then on the morning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest offered a burnt offering. Following this, he ritually bathed his entire body, and then instead of putting on his traditional robes, he donned a sacred white linen tunic along with white undergarments and a white sash and white turban, thus symbolizing that he was free from defilement. That's a lot of work, right? That that probably makes James and the band's practice for tonight seem really insignificant in comparison. A lot went into preparation for the Day of Atonement. That's not to belittle what James and the band are doing, by the way. They are awesome, and tonight is going to rule. Good. They, did. They, ba- <laughs> they bathed. I think they're going to wear white sashes and undergarments tonight, so it should be incredible. Um, but, but you talk about a sacred affair, right? I mean, this is, this is a sacred moment. Can you, can you just imagine the joy and relief that God's people would have experienced uh, once the sacrifices for sin had been offered on that day? It all sounds pretty incredible. The the glory of the tabernacle and all of its splendor being described here. The presence of God in the midst of his people. The hope of atonement for sin. But according to the author of Hebrews, it was all insufficient. It was all inadequate. For one, we're talking about limited access to God. If you weren't a priest, again, the closest you could get was, was the front of the courtyard. The front of the courtyard. If you were a priest, you might be fortunate enough to go into the first room of the tabernacle on occasion. And even the high priest only had access to the second, more sacred room for a few glorious minutes at best. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is looking to make in verse 8, where he says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. In other words, as long as that first section is still standing, the holy place, that means the veil is still in place, separating it from the holy of holies. And as long as the veil is still in place, there is no direct access between man and God. Unable to confidently draw near to his throne of grace, as we read about a few chapters ago in this book of the Bible. But that's not the only problem. Not only are we talking about limited access, but also limited effectiveness, Going back to verse 7, the sacrifice that the high priest offered only covered the unintentional sins of the people. What what about intentional sins? Premeditated sins create a real problem, right? Think about King David and his premeditated adultery, his premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. In his famous confession in Psalm 51, David says to the Lord, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. All David could do was to bring to the Lord a broken and contrite heart and throw himself on God's mercy. The sacrificial system was inadequate, incomplete. He goes on to say at the end of verse 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, the old covenant couldn't absolve the human conscience of its guilt. A perfectly clear, pure conscience was just beyond man's reach. The old system was external. It was inadequate. Verse 11, oftentimes one of the most glorious words in the Bible, 
But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. As the author of Hebrews has been saying over and over and over again, the old covenant was a shadow of the substance that would eventually come in Jesus Christ. When you see the Christmas story unfold, you see the fulfillment of all of those shadows coming to fruition. Jesus did something greater than the Levitical priests. Again, Kent Hughes in his commentary says this. He says, Jesus did not just slip into the most holy place amidst a protective cloud of incense to breathlessly perform a ritual sprinkling and then exit until next year like the high priests of old. Instead, he, Jesus, came having given his own precious blood once and for all. And there he sat down at the right hand of the Father, never more to leave. Everything foreshadowed by the earthly tabernacle, the altar, the laver, the candlestick, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the tabernacle itself even is fulfilled in his priesthood in ways beyond description. But if you think about all those furnishings, and you think about Jesus, Jesus is the true lampstand. He's the light of the world. Jesus is the true consecrated bread. He's the bread of life. As we read about a couple chapters ago, Jesus' words of of intercession on our behalf are sweet-smelling incense to the Father. He perfectly fulfilled every command written on the tablets of stone that sat in the Ark of the Covenant. That's amazing. His atoning death is the fulfillment of everything that the mercy seat symbolized. When Jesus died on the cross, we've talked about this numerous times, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn. And not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom because God was making a way for salvation, not man. Little detail coming back to that incredible picture from, I'm guessing, the 80s, maybe early 90s there. Um, when, When the veil that you see up there separating the two rooms. When the veil, when the curtain of the tabernacle was created, you may be able to see this in this picture, uh, separating the holy place from the most holy place. Cherubim were embroidered on it as a reminder that the Israelites couldn't enter because of their sin, a reminder of what happened in the Garden of Eden. If you go back and read Genesis 3, you see man separated from God with cherubim, with flaming sword in hand, standing in the way of man's re-entrance into that garden. When Jesus died, we're told that the veil was torn and the cherubim were taken away. A visible declaration that Jesus is the way back into the presence of God. We can confidently come into God's presence by grace through faith in the finished priestly work of Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews is arguing. That we don't have to stand at the outer edges of the proverbial courtyard. We're we're invited, according to the author of Hebrews, to confidently draw near to God's throne of grace. True, intimate accessibility to God. I mean, think about it. If you can kind of take yourself back a couple thousand years ago, picture yourself as a person of Jewish background. Can you imagine what would have run through the minds of the Jews when that curtain was visibly split from top to bottom? I mean, just puts the, the, the big reveal at the end of the Wizard of Oz to shame, right? What's on the other side of that curtain? We get to see it. We get to see something that we had no access to before. I think we oftentimes can so easily take for granted the tearing of the veil that that we can now confidently approach God's throne of grace. 
We have access to the living God. It's unbelievable. But, but not just true, intimate access to God. Remember, the problem with the Old Covenant was not just limited access, but also limited effectiveness. The author of Hebrews is making the point that not only has Jesus separated, uh, torn the curtain separating us from God, he also has established full effectiveness with respect to forgiveness and the purifying of our consciences. Let me attempt to make some sense of that. Verse 13 he says, for, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? But considering the external cleansing and forgiveness for sins of ignorance that the sacrificial system offered in the Old Testament, how much more glorious must the internal cleansing of our conscience and the full forgiveness of sin in Christ be? That if all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament can make you ritually clean, how much more will the blood of the sinless Son of God purify us? That's what he's getting after. Albert Speer uh, he was one of Hitler's right-hand men. Uh, he was responsible for actually keeping Nazi factories in business during World War II. He was a war criminal. He was ultimately sentenced to uh, 20 years in prison. He was interviewed on ABC's Good Morning America. He had written a book, and he was brought in for an interview to talk about that book. L listen to what he said. He said, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that, he says. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. He couldn't shake the guilt. He couldn't, he couldn't remove the dirtiness clinging to his conscience. My guess would be that that's how some of us in this room feel right now. Maybe that's you. Maybe you come into this place bearing the, will, uh, the weight of, of great guilt and shame, searching for some way to try to get rid of it, to shake it, some way to cleanse your conscience. Can, can I just give you some good news this morning, if that's you? The shed blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to absolve you of all of your guilt. He was declared guilty in your place so that you could stand righteous before the living God. The shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to take away all of your shame. He was, he was shamed in your place so that you might stand unashamed before God. Like our first parents in the garden before sin entered our story. And that message is for all of us, Christian and non-Christian alike. We Christians can so easily default into this thinking that we have to absolve our own guilt. That we have to cover our own shame. Let me, let me just ask a question this morning. When your conscience rises up and condemns you, where will you turn? Where do you turn? What the author of Hebrews is saying is the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of sacrificial animals. He's the unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're not a Christian, the, the call would be to turn to him for the first time. And if you are a Christian, the call would be to turn to him for the thousandth time. Charles Simeon, one of the great preachers of the Church of England, he described his conversion like this. He says, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I have no idea who Bishop Wilson is. I guess he writes something really good on the Lord's Supper. He says, I met with an expression to this effect. 
that the Jew knew, Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. In other words, the sacrificial animal that was being slaughtered for their sin. He says, the thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer all of my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, he says, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. In the words of the great hymn writer writer Horatius Bonar, he says, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a stain remains. Or how about these words from the great hymn writer Isaac Watts? He says, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But, there it is, but Christ the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. That's Hebrews chapter 9, people. Isn't Jesus glorious? Over and over again, he wants us to behold Jesus and be affected by, be changed by the beholding. He lived the perfect sinless life that we can never live, a life without blemish or spot. He died the the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. The perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb of God offered up in order to secure, as the author of Hebrews says in this passage, our eternal redemption. If you're a Christian, according to Verse 14, you are truly free. You're truly free. In the words of the author of Hebrews, you are free to serve the living God. You're free to operate from a position of acceptance rather than living in the pursuit of it. You're free to serve God, not in an attempt to merit his love, but simply as a response to his mercy and grace offered you in Jesus Christ. As Al Mohler says in his commentary, I love this, he says, Redeemed people, if you're a Christian, it's you. Redeemed people serve God and find fulfillment and joy in doing the very things that we did out of obligation and frantic determination to try to justify ourselves before Christ came. Just a different motivation. Motivated by grace, compelled by grace. And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would all soak in the glorious grace of God that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. If it's for the first time, awesome. I would love to hear about that. Tell me about your conversion. If it's for the thousandth time, awesome. Let's soak in the lavish, unbelievable grace of God that's ours. And and let's allow that grace to compel us to spend our lives for God's glory.